Last week, Ryan and I were supposed to preach together on 1 Corinthians 7 and 8, and he was going to talk about singleness and I was going to talk about marriage, but I didn't make it. So today I want to add um, on to what Ryan said last week. He did a great job of helping us think through singleness, and I want to help us think through marriage. At times, I'm going to be talking directly to married people or maybe directly to singles, but since this chapter includes instructions to both, there's obviously overlap, so it's for all of us. I want to start out just by talking for a minute about what is hard and what is good about being married. One of the reasons is because I think there's a temptation to think that the grass is greener on the other side, no matter which side you're on. And so I want to start with some of the things that are kind of hard about being married. I think conflict is one, having conflict with someone and then having to continue doing life with them, share the same bed with them, serve them can be difficult. Financial burdens, because they don't just affect you anymore, they affect other people too. Balancing family and ministry. And when I say ministry, I mean the ministry that we're all called to as disciples. Constantly strengthening and growing your relationship with your spouse takes time and emotional effort. Having kids, period, <laughs> is very difficult. And then having other people to consider when you have kids and decision making. So like what is best for everybody and staying together for your whole lives. Um, sometimes that's a real gift to know that you're staying together your whole life. But sometimes that can seem really overwhelming and really difficult. And then on the other side of that, what's good about being married? Because sometimes I think we only talk about the problem of marriage and we scare people out of ever wanting to get married. So let's talk about what's good about being married. It's a lot of fun. You get to be married to your best friend or I'm married to my best friend. It's definitely not a happily ever after, but it is fun. The burdens of life are lighter because you have a partner to share them with you. You have emotional support, there's physical intimacy, and then there's just the idea of societal acceptance and approval and of financial stability because you usually have more than one person contributing. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 7 and what that can teach us about how to think about marriage. I want to read 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 6. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. See, I think it's important for us to look and see that in chapters 5 and 6, Paul was addressing the problem of sexual immorality, sexual promiscuity, and when we get to chapter 7, we're looking at the opposite problem. We're looking at a problem of people advocating for completely refraining from sex, even within marriage. 
The Jews were overemphasizing marriage and the Greeks were overemphasizing celibacy. And so Paul answers like he does throughout this letter with the gospel. In Christ, both being single and married are good. In Christ, sex is a good part of marriage. In Christ, mutual submission is a good part of marriage. So let's start with the hardest part here. Let's start with the submission word. What does that even mean? Submission is a decision to yield to someone else and put their interests ahead of your own. It challenges the instinct to look out for me. It says that I can't expect to always have my way. I can't believe that my ideas and opinions are better than your way or your ideas. It says my desires are not more important than yours. It's what Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In his sermon last week, JVR gave us a good example of this when he talked about Sini Royal telling their small group, I wake up every morning and ask God to change me to be the person my spouse needs me to be to grow in Christ. And here's the kicker to that. We do this whether they deserve it or not. As a matter of fact, we do this especially when they don't deserve it. Why would we do that? We do that because of Christ. Ephesians 5.17 tells us that we submit out of reverence for Christ. We do it because we've committed to live like him, and that's how he lived, and that's how he treats us. Is it easy? Absolutely not. Submission is hard, and these verses In these verses, Paul is talking about something radical, mutual submission, not just wives being submissive to husbands, but husbands and wives being submissive submissive to one another. Husbands and wives putting the needs of each other before their own. Not only is this mutual submission radical to us in our day and age, but it would have rocked the patriarchal society Paul was living in and writing to. Most non-Christian husbands would have been horrified at the notion that their bodies belong to their wives. Paul is making a shocking statement that both partners are equal in God's eyes and that we must treat each other with the mutual respect such equality requires. It's unbelievable. It's countercultural, definitely. It's radical. And guys, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is all of those things. Paul's specifically speaking to the sexual relationship within a marriage in these verses. He's saying it should never be used as something to be withheld as a threat or a punishment. He's saying neither partner should insist on sex on demand, but rather they should care about what's going on with each other emotionally and physically. In addition, neither could, should consistently try to get out of satisfying the other's needs. The mutual submission Paul is addressing here is specifically in answer to a question about abstaining from sex even within marriage. However, the implication of this mutual submission that Paul talks about applies to most all areas of marriage, as indicated in Ephesians 5.21 when he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In addition, submission was, has broader implications than just marriage. It also applies to the church. 
So whether we're talking about submission to our spouse or to the members of our church community, and the Bible talks about both, it is directly counter to our fallen nature. It's affected by but not dependent on our circumstances. We're called to mutual submission to one another, whether single or married. Romans 12, 5 says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Jesus tells us that if we want to be his disciple, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. That means to crucify, to put ourselves to death daily. One reason for that is he knew that the biggest obstacle we would face with submission is not the other person. It is ourselves. It is strongly ingrained in us to protect ourselves and our rights. 1 Corinthians 8 demonstrates that love is the foundation of Christian behavior. That's why there's a whole chapter on love in 1 Corinthians. Love limits freedom. Insisting on one's rights, even insisting on one's rights as a Christian, is a sign that someone else other than the true God is being worshipped. And guess what? That someone is me. Marriage involves a radical mutual submission, and to be submissive, I must remove myself from the throne and surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit in me. So singles are submissive to Christ and to the body. Married people are submissive to Christ and to their spouse and to the body. That means we put the interests of Christ above our own. We put the interests of our spouse above our own. We put the interest of the members of our body above our own. I know that many of you are probably thinking, what does that even look like? Here's the thing. I could give you examples of that, but submission is supernatural. The Holy Spirit is the one who will tell you what that looks like in your life. If after seeking his guidance and wrestling with what it means on your own, you still have questions, I'll be happy to talk with you about that. The second thing 1 Corinthians teaches us about marriage as well as singleness is that they are gifts for the good of the church. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 in the message says, Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me, a simpler way of life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. Charisma is the word used for gift in 7-7 that I just read you. It's the same word that's used in chapter 1, verse 7, when Paul tells them they do not lack any spiritual gift. And we know that spiritual gifts were meant to be used for the good of the body. Therefore, the status of singleness or marriage as gifts means that they are for the common good of the church. Let that sink in for a minute. Both marriage and singleness are gifts, and both are for the common good of the church. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Married people, God did not give you the gift of marriage so that you could focus on just the two of you. He did not give you the gift of family so you could withdraw from the world and from community to your little protective bubble of us. God gave you these gifts to use for the good of the body and the kingdom. 
Spouses, support one another in whatever opportunities God gives you to love people and to share Jesus with them. Support each other in building relationships outside of just the two of you. Encourage each other to use your gifts for the good of the body. Encourage one another to spend time with your friends. Parents, teach your kids to love their friends in the neighborhood and in their school, as well as their friends at church. Teach them to think critically about other ways of living and other beliefs. Teach them to love and serve by taking them with you to do those things. This is so exciting to me. God is so wise. He puts the parts of the body together just perfectly. And to be able to look at singleness and marriage and call both of those a gift is mind-blowing to me. The questions we should ask ourselves, I think, are, number one, do I think about being single, married, or having kids as a gift? And number two, how could I use my gift of marriage and family or singleness for the good of the community? This picks up on our values of warm community, deep relationships, and everyday outreach. This is important that we think through these questions for our community. So please don't let this go. Talk to one another about it and hold one another accountable for this. So what is our culture telling us about marriage and family? And then I'm going to follow that with how does Paul's position that both singleness and marriage are important and valuable choices correct or counter what our culture is telling us about marriage? There are a lot of things I could say here, but I've just picked three. The first one is, and Ryan mentioned this in his sermon as well, that marriage is a state of fulfillment or wholeness. Over the years, I've had to try to adjust the language that I grew up with of my spouse compliments me. My spouse completes me. I mean, not compliments. Our relationship with Jesus is where our fulfillment and wholeness come from. It's an un fair expectation to expect your spouse to do that for you. You will always be disappointed. Even the best spouse makes a terrible God. Married people, when you speak of marriage in this way, what is it you're saying to your single brothers and sisters? That they can't be whole or fulfilled? That somehow they're not already complete? Singles can be whole and complete as well because our relationship with Jesus is what gives us that. The second thing I think we hear from our culture is that family is my spouse and kids and that family is everything. Ryan also referenced Mark 3, 34 and 35, and I'm going to go back to that here as well, where Jesus says that community is our family, that people that do the will of God are who our family is. And that that family is, we're to share our family with that community as a gift. And singles are part of our families too. God never meant for our marriages and our families to separate us from the community or from the people that live around us. Family is meant to be lived out in community. And then three, only people in our same position can understand us or give helpful advice. So only married people can give marriage advice and only people with kids can give parenting advice. I'm not going to dismiss the importance of experience here, 
But every believer has the spirit and the mind of Christ. And it's ridiculous to think that singles can't read scripture and discern how to be a good spouse or people with kids can't learn what it looks like to be a godly parent. They have a lot to offer us in our families and our marriages, and we need to listen to them and take advantage of the wisdom that they have as well. So what is a biblical vision for married and family life? While it's true that our time is divided when we have a spouse and or children, our vision is that couples and families work together to carry out Christ's mission to make and and mature disciples who love, serve, and share Jesus. Our families should be places where hearts are turned to God and lives are changed. Family is the people who live out God's will, so the married, single, young, old, live and work alongside one another to carry out this mission and vision. As we do that, our children will grow up with models of singles, marrieds, and parents who love and live for Jesus. We don't turn inward, rather we reach out to others both inside and outside our church community in love and concern to show them how the gospel is for everyone. We all submit to Christ, spouses submit to each other, and the body submits to one another. Seems like a big task, right? But we trust the work of the Holy Spirit to make this a reality as we seek to glorify God. One of the last things I want to mention here is just what I believe one of the biggest threats to marriage and family life is. In 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31, Paul references things like the time is limited, and this world in its present form is passing away. Later, Paul devotes a whole chapter to the resurrection. Jesus' second coming and the temporary nature of this current life were always on Paul's mind, and it made a big difference in how he lived his life. We all need this perspective, and we definitely need it about singleness, marriage, and submission. We need to be thoughtful. The biggest threat to marriage and family life is thoughtlessness. The NIVAC says it this way. This section proceeds where Paul talks about how the unmarried can be singularly concerned with pleasing the Lord, whereas the married have to be concerned about pleasing their spouse as well. The fact that Paul starts with this admonition to all Christians to be mindful of the urgency of serving God tells us that this passage was not meant to let married people off the hook. What Paul is saying is that all Christians, no matter what their status, should sense an urgency to serving the Lord because after the Lord returns, it will no longer be possible to win any more people to Christ or to disciple them to maturity. The time is limited, as Paul says. Those who choose to marry must not become so preoccupied with their families that they can no longer effectively carry out the command to make disciples of all nations. It indicates that there is a way to do both. There's a way to take care of your family and disciple them, as well as a way to make and mature disciples outside of your family. These two responsibilities are not in competition with one another. They work together. The same is true with other normal activities in our lives. Most of the time, we're not choosing between good and bad, rather between better and best. 
We desperately need examples of how to combine marriage and family with our life as disciples in a way that neglects neither. Just because we can't do it all doesn't mean we refuse to do anything. The questions we need to ask ourselves are, number one, are we prioritizing activities with eternal impact? Number two, are we including our families and teaching them how to live out this undivided devotion to the Lord? And three, are we currently interacting with people outside the Christian community? We cannot be thoughtless in the way we live if we want to have marriages and families that glorify God. To wrap up, Paul makes bold statements about marriage and singleness being gifts and about mutual submission both in marriage and in the church community. These are hard topics to discuss. If you're feeling singled out, judged, convicted, it could be the word judging the thoughts and attitudes of your heart, and it would be good to listen. Marriage is hard. Singleness is hard. How in the world can we do it without God and without our church community? I don't think we can. I think that's what Paul was getting at here. That's why we are told to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul never lets married people off the hook because their interests are divided. He never forbids single people to marry. Each of us is to use our singleness or marriage for the good of the community and the kingdom. We want to be a community that values, includes, and supports both life situations. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be, 1 Corinthians 12, 14. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.